London Lopate at large. I'm London Lopate. Many important news stories get little attention on the established media until they can't be ignored. To help us learn about them when they arise, we've been inviting one of our show's favorite guests, Robert Henley, an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics to our show. And you can hear his WBAI show most Monday mornings. He also reports regularly for Salon and a number of prominent news organizations. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Hi, Leonard. Happy, happy uh, May Day, plus a couple of days. <laughs> Hasn't... Um, New York City's Mayor Eric Adams signed a contract with Aetna as part of uh, his administration's campaign to strip 250,000 municipal retirees of their traditional Medicare benefits and push them into a profit-driven Medicare Advantage program. What's the rationale behind that? And is that something that he came up with, or does this date back to the de Blasio administration? So it does date back to the de Blasio administration. First, let me answer it as I think a mayoral spokesman might, hmm. so that we get the full 360 of the story. This indeed is a Medicare Advantage plan, which will offer several advantages to retirees, which will be something that will save the city of New York hundreds of millions of dollars and help us to continue to keep premium free health care for our active duty employees. See, that's how they would spin it. But in reality, uh, the city of New York is opting to go the way that other organizations have. Similarly, the AFL-CIO, a very important national labor organization, uh, AARP, uh, buying into something that is called Medicare Advantage. Let's unpack what exactly that is. It is a situation where an independent for-profit company uh, takes your files and is responsible for shepherding through the tribulations of life. And they look at your medical chart. And in some cases, as has been reported by the New York Times and Kaiser Health News, not exactly Marxist outlets, what they do is they make patients up to appear to be sicker than they actually may be for the government, for CMS. That's the cash register. Those are the folks from the federal government that send the money to the insurance company. And then on the provider end, that would be suckers, you and I, those are the patients. They then require you to go through the candy land of prior authorization. The little safety bumps on the way to getting the critical care you know you need, but you need a special permission slip to say that you're entitled to it. And they hope that something will happen between the time you actually use it, who knows, but you don't access it, and that's money they can put in their pocket. And with the Wall Street kind of mindset, that's what this is all about. Now, of course, the city will say, uh, and particularly Michael Mulgrew, the head of the UFT, says that they have come up with a way of dramatically reducing those prior authorizations. But the bottom line is we're having the private sector cash in on the promise that is Medicare, and there's ample evidence, and it's been uh, reported even by Aetna itself, that this particular business plan 
has gotten the attention of the Department of Justice. And so we have open investigations into these Medicare Advantage plans that may have built the government billions of dollars and not provided the care that was essential for the people that subscribe to the plan. And haven't several groups of retirees led by the New York City Organization of Public Service Retirees protested this push into Medicare Advantage, citing a, a profit-making business model that relies on delaying and denying people care through the use of those prior authorizations? Uh, that's true. Uh, one of the things is that the Municipal Labor Committee, which represents the unions that make up the over 300,000 members of the active civil service, uh, has been in partnership historically with the city of New York when it comes to issues like health care. And so I would say that where this was set into motion, and history is important here, is that a, a mayor Bloomberg, uh, during his 12 years, uh, really went about doing all he could uh, to uh, go after the civil service and unions. Hmm. And the way he did that was by, for six years, not closing any contracts, by letting contracts lapse year after year after year. And aside from showing so great wait, So this goes all the way back to Bloomberg. Oh, yes, indeed. Hmm. And so just like he laid the IEDs for the taxi industry, which he didn't like, uh, and that blew up uh, when he left, this is what they did with uh, the public unions. And so what ended up happening was years went by without these contracts being settled. Compound interest works for you when you're making the proper deposits, but when it doesn't, when you're not making the proper deposits and you're not seeing the advances in cost of living and not getting uh, ethical treatment, then all of a sudden, all of these welfare funds come under stress. And so it became, uh, it was incumbent on Mayor de Blasio, to his credit, who settled over 100 contracts in 18 months, and in the process, there was a billion dollars or so, hundreds of millions of dollars, that had been set aside for uh, the health stabilization fund, which the city blew through to satisfy the teacher's contract. Now, when you ask the teacher's union about this, they'll say, well, we gave it back in the form of savings. But the reality is that the city of New York leaned on these structural funds to try to make whole the unions, because going back several years, the administration under Mayor Bloomberg had denied the unions the dignity of current contracts year after year. And he did structural damage to the city of New York, which is now actually starting to show uh, cracks in where on Mayor Adams term. Uh, it's also important to understand that this premium free health care that these folks were promised was a form of deferred compensation. And this is why people were willing to take salaries in the public sector that often were 30 percent less hmm. than equivalent job title in the private sector because of this implicit promise from the city of New York. So how has it played out for these retirees? Are they well, the, are they suffering as a result? Well, what's happened is that under de Blasio, they tried to uh, shift them to a Medicare Advantage plan. And what they said was that if they wanted to stick with their existing plan and not opt out, they could pay $191 a month. Hmm. The retirees 
who represent a very diverse coalition. I mean, basically everything from the people that provide lunch for school kids to people that are mathematicians and the and the civil engineers that keep the uh, the water system running. So these are no slouches here. And so they went to court and they've been successful. Uh, and the court basically, while it said Medicare Advantage was okay, that the city could uh, shift its plan, it, it held up for the notion that this premium, that there had to be a premium free option. And basically, this is where it now resides, is that they're going, but no doubt we'll be seeing some kind of court action filed soon, because they had to do that plan all over again. What uh, the plan that uh, de Blasio had the the play the two outfits walked away and so now they went back to the drawing board again but the reality is that this is just creating a tremendous amount of instability for people at the most vulnerable time in their lives and it's also about adding to wall street's bottom line and let let's just uh, get a bead on etna this is a company that admitted that it ensured the transatlantic slave trade and it's not like they said, oh, we feel bad. Here's a million dollars to traditionally black uh, colleges. No, they apologized. You know, stuff happens. When you're when you're a business, stuff happens. And then on top of that, we had the admission that they made, which was published in the New York Times, that last year they were under Department of Justice investigation. So that's really where we are right now. It's, it's hard to believe that 250,000 retirees could find themselves in who worked for a so-called progressive city would find themselves in such a marginal state. But that's where we are. And, and my union, sag after pushed me into a, an Aetna plan. But that's Don't whole, you feel better? <laughs> um, on, a, on a national level, you reported recently that despite decades of progress in worker safety since the creation of the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration in 1970, an analysis from the AFL-CIO reveals that there's troubling evidence of deadly backsliding, particularly for the nation's black and Latino workers. Right. Do we yeah, have any like idea double- of why the fatality rate for black and Latino workers has spiked in the past couple of years? Well, what's even more alarming is, for the most part, this doesn't even include COVID. Because the only place in the federal government that they were keeping uh, track of this was CMS, the folks that underwrite uh, Medicaid and Medicare. Nursing homes that were funded by CMS did, to their credit, keep track. So just in that sphere alone, since June of 2020, we've lost 3,009 nursing home workers, and they're still losing 18 a day. Wow. On the issue about the increase of uh, the arc of the the alarming statistic for uh, African-American workers, uh, the uh, on-site death rate, that has been coming over 20 years. And so I would say that and the same, the Latino uh, rate has increased, but not as sharply. But one of the things we see is that in the uh, a thousand some odd deaths that occur for Latino uh, workers each year, over half of those are immigrants. And so I think it's fair to say that we've seen in this uh, deregulatory environment uh, that the what we call the precariat, the, those are the folks that are lucky to have a job or they have some documentation uh, challenge that they're uh, like they don't have papers to work. Uh, they're working in the gig economy. They're all in in a very tangential relationship, and their social contract is kind of weak with their employer. These kinds of folks are very vulnerable 
to being victims of construction accidents. We see it every day. The uh, New York City Central uh, Labor Council uh, and NICOSH has a very moving ceremony. They just did it on Workers Memorial Day, which was at the end of April. We had 50 individuals who lost their lost their life this past year. And this is on worksite death. That's not even the 120,000 that die of occupational-related diseases every year. And as I said, not even COVID, which is not on anyone's radar except for the unions that advocate for essential workers. Well, it's been reported that Latino workers have the greatest risk of dying on the job with a fatality rate of four and a half per 100,000 workers. It's grown by 13 percent over the past decade. And you point out most most of them are are immigrants. How much does the federal government spend on their job safety? So I would say total it's three dollars and ninety nine cents per worker. And if you were to have uh, your place of employment, all the places of employment inspected with the current number of uh, cohort of inspectors, it would take 190 years to visit each one once. So it's not like they got your back. Hmm. Oh, and one other thing I did want to point out is there are several situations where public as county and state employees particularly in right-to-work states in the South, but even in some places that you would expect that would be in place, like Pennsylvania, they don't have OSHA protections at all. It's far more like the 19th century than people want to realize. Well, a couple of years back, m- most of the statistics seemed to be from 2021. Um, nearly 5,200 workers were killed on the job, with close to 500 of them having been murdered. And right. another 120,000 workers died prematurely from an illness they contracted as a consequence of their employment. That, that's a lot of people dying. Yeah, I, and then also add to it, and I just did a piece that was Insider NJ, uh, a very moving ceremony uh, last month where we saw uh, the public safety officers, that would be your EMTs, fire department, uh, police, corrections in New Jersey. Uh, there was a case of 45 uh, of these folks had passed in that first wave of COVID. And this was before there was sufficient PPE when we didn't have vaccines. And, and doing the reporting Uh, And looking after the names, we were still finding more individuals. One very tragic case was of a a husband and wife couple that were career corrections officers in New Jersey, where the wife passed, I think it was in that first wave, and the husband got infected. There was a big write-up about um, his wife, who was a senior corrections officer. And then he passes in relative obscurity in August of 2022 from that initial infection mm-hmm. and not so much as a paragraph. And uh, well, so the, the statistics are some 458 local, state, tribal and federal officers died in the line of duty in 2021. Uh, much of that due to COVID. Uh, what about 2022 and this year so far? Have things improved at all? Well, they I, I would certainly they, they have dropped off. And now what we're seeing is the complication of long COVID. And so that's where this disease we've seen the, the uh, general account uh, G, GAO came up with a survey where they put a ballpark like several million Americans are having some form of 
long COVID of varying severity and different symptoms, and they estimate about a, a million have actually been sidelined by long COVID. Now, where that gets to be uh, really a problem is that the United States is a patchwork when it comes to the uh, workers' compensation. And so if you happen to get COVID on the job in that first wave before there was sufficient masking mm -hmm. and vaccine, uh, well, then you have a, a would they you don't have a presumption that your COVID was occupational. But if you have the good fortune to be west of the Hudson in New Jersey, by gosh, by golly, you have a presumption. So that's the kind of craziness. We're seeing situations where people got this disease working as respiratory therapists, working as frontline healthcare professionals, and the very same hospitals that were ill-equipped are fighting the claim. Sorry, I get upset. <laughs> We're talking with Bob Henley about uh, some of the, the underreported stories in the news. Um, are you surprised? Oh, by the way, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Are you surprised that some of these stories don't even make it onto the television news, for example, despite the fact that we're talking about a lot of people dying? Well, I think that there's been a kind of uh, a human response that people are weary. I understand that. Um, it has been a tribulation in, in the Old Testament uh, frame, right? So it's been going on well over two years at this point. Uh, it's one of these things where, uh, it, you know, the attitude is people want to move forward. They want to move on. But my concern here is that we owe it to the departed. Uh, not just to honor their their memory for their sacrifice, but we, we owe it to future generations and to ourselves uh, to remember them and to research the circumstances around their demise so that we can forever remind ourselves how singularly and spectacularly unprepared we were. And that's the thing people want to look away from. That's why when the Senate down in Washington, when a couple of senators, uh, Senator Menendez, to his credit, tried to get through a 9-11 style commission to take a look at this, they get really weak need because both political parties, if you're in charge, you don't want to like review. How did you handle nursing homes, Governor? How did you handle public safety, Governor? No, they want to move on. And but unfortunately, in a thinking society where scientists tell us it's more likely this is going to occur again in the age of climate change, we owe it to these people and to ourselves to study it. And, and I would say go as far as we do for war memorials. Every small town, as I look out my uh, my window here down towards Bradley Beach, there's a memorial to World War One. And that was supposed to be a memorial to remind us of the cost of war. Well, I would tell you, we need similar monuments throughout the United States to remind us about the cost of greed and scarcity in healthcare and a reckless disregard for our neighbors' well-being. How much of this is uh, the result of uh, the way race is still uh, considered an issue in this country. According to an investigation by The Guardian newspapers and Kaiser Health News, at least 3,600 healthcare workers died in the first wave of COVID, right. 721 from New York and New Jersey, and close to two-thirds of them were people of color. 
Right. That's it. And this is something that just jumps out. Uh, I would say about a year ago, I was on a Zoom call press conference with uh, Reverend William Barber and Jeffrey Sachs, the economist. They had taken um, uh, a, a look at the Cairo Center that works with Reverend Barber, had taken a look at the data that was available for county by county mortality and then overlaid uh, race and income. And what jumped out at you uh, like a heat map was that where excess mortality was highest was the places where the folks were struggling. So there's a connection between the lack of access to healthcare on a regular basis and an increased infection and mortality rate for COVID. And I might add, parenthetically, where do you think the arms and legs of the essential workforce are putting their head down every night? It's in the same zip codes we'd like to move on and forget about. In New York City, close to 400 civil servants you report, ranging from school teachers to diesel mechanics and well over 100 TWU local um, 100 bus and subway employees of the MTA lost their lives due to their workplace exposure to the virus. I'm assuming it's higher now. It is, but it did. It, there was that first wave. And then as vaccines got into place and uh, the general arc of it has changed. So what I think you like I say, the thing we need to track is this long COVID. We're still getting arms around that. And uh, right now we're cutting back on all requirements for dealing with COVID. Then the federal mandate is, is going to change what next month. Yeah, well, no, no, it's May 11th. Uh, oh, so President next Biden week. Is gonna, May 11th is going to put the aviator glasses on. I think they still have the George Bush mission accomplished hmm. on the aircraft carrier. We whip the pandemic and we're going to move on. Uh, and don't get me wrong. We've made some major strides. But the question is, do we have the courage to face the gaps that this once in a century mass death event have shown us. And right now, I would say the fact that we do not see in the guided discussion that passes for 2024, we don't see a discussion about us, uh, the most important labor issue, which is universal health care. And so it has all been uh, curated for us. We'll be doing gun control for 500, uh, reproductive rights, that's the other one, or whether or not Trump won the last election, boys and girls. Well, that's where all, I like to keep us focused. Those are all important, but these are as well. Uh, well, I would say health care after you lost 1.1 million people. I mean, let's, let's look at the great United States record here. 4% of the sentient beings on the planet and 12% of the dead bodies that the world produced from COVID. I don't know if that's your Aetna premium. I don't know what's going on there. But if you were a developing nation, the World Bank would say they'd summon you and say, well, you really need to work on this because this country has the most expensive health care and the worst Outcomes And somehow people are brainwashed that it's the best in the world. Well, isn't a, a coalition of New Jersey's healthcare unions warning that without a legally enforceable nurse to patient ratio, nurses will continue to leave the, the state's acute care hospitals that are already facing a, a skilled nursing shortage? Yeah, that is. Uh, is that all because of, of COVID? Well, no, this has been something that uh, you go back to 2004, and uh, luckily, because California had militant nurses unions, the patients and populations of California have enjoyed 
the civilized protections of a patient-to-nurse ratio. And then However, since, uh, since 2004, following California, um, at least six, 14 other states and the District of Columbia have, uh, have put them into the books. Right. So, so, but what's happened here is that uh, this has created a situation. This predates COVID. A lot of the things that were part of the great unraveling uh, started before COVID. So it's important to understand. It's like when you go back and look at how yourself, how you get sick and you think, you know, I was having a scratchy throat. But before that, I was sniffling. So let's look back at the American population like it was a person. So we have a declining life expectancy. Oh, a couple of years. That's before the pandemic. Well, we tell ourselves and rationalize. Well, we had a lot of people committing suicide. Stuff happens. Uh, but then we also had this problem with the nursing shortage. And we also started to see increasing tension in hospitals because we were closing them. We were closing rural hospitals because we were internalizing the Wall Street model, like don't put good money after bad. Why do you want to have empty hospitals or empty hospital beds? Let's have it be real time delivery. Well, that comes becomes a problem when you have a mass death event. So that's what occurred. And the nurses now are pointing out that there's a direct connection between quality staffing and infection control. The more people that you have, the better care that patients will get. And so they want to see that codified. And to some degree, the New York State Nurses Association is leading the way on this because of the great contracts that they had. Not only did they get a 19.6% a, a raise over the term of the contract, but they actually, in this last round of uh, contracts under the leadership of Nancy Hagan's, got actual enforceable guarantees for patient and nurse ratios, which really is something that in the long run saves money because it has better outcome and you have reduction in injury to the workforce and you have uh, patients that get to go home and are less likely to return as being chronically ill. So hasn't the, the push for patient-nurse ratios run into stiff resistance from the corporate hospital complex? Is that just in New Jersey or also in New York State? I would say that everywhere we are seeing this. And one of the things is, uh, and you might want to get Gretchen Morgenstern out. She's got it uh, on. She's got a great book out called the something like The Plunderers, right? And Gretchen Morgenstern, I've never met her, but she's been spot on. Back in the 2008 housing crisis, she was one of the few financial writers to get it right. Talk about what was going on with rape and pillage by Wall Street of Main Street. And so she's now taken her consideration. She's got a co-author that I'm not familiar with. And they take a look, actually, and look at the fact that 40% of America's emergency rooms are now owned by these venture capital firms, hedge funds. And so what's happened is right at the time that we need to go towards making healthcare universal, the American uh, predator capitalist system is doubling down on increasingly putting Wall Street in the driver's seat when it comes to people's health care. You're seeing them get into everything from ambulances to nursing homes because that's where the money is. A listener um, has expressed concern about uh, the fact that no one is discussing the coming Alzheimer's crisis. Well, yeah, I think that that's... Is that going to be fact, the next pandemic? Well, I think to some degree... 
uh, there's been some research that shows that some of the COVID fog, we may see this all aggravated and moved along faster. Uh, one of the things that uh, there was uh, a discussion in policy circles about the baby boomers coming of age and then retiring, we're in the midst of that. It's true that we're going through a situation where the birth rate and, and for a whole host of reasons, which we could do a whole program on, we're not seeing young people feel uh, optimistic enough to have children at the rate that we once did. And that's very, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot that has to do with the debt, what we've done with uh, college, how we turned uh, college into a debt machine, once again, for Wall Street and financial interests. Uh, but there is a, this, uh, we are, we're going to be down nurses, and that's why we already are, and that's why we need to try to preserve the workforce we have. How do we do that? We make sure that, it, that we uh, uh, prevent burnout, and the way to do that is make sure that their jobs have some level of dignity to it so that we don't get into the very destructive thing of kind of you know mandatory overtime, which does it, it's against the law, but there's all kinds of pressures that can be put on people. I mean, we have to invest in public health. We're refusing to take the lesson from the pandemic, which is that we disinvested in public health. And even under Obama, we didn't build it back to where it was institutionally. And all these uh, public health uh, local officials, a generation of talent, was many of them were bullied out of their jobs because of how this company country turned reactionary about something like compliance about masks. Well, the the Joint Commission, a nonprofit and the nation's oldest accrediting body for hospitals, reported that workers in healthcare are at least four times more likely to be targeted for violence than other workers. And uh, the actual number of violent incidents involving healthcare work is likely much higher than is being reported because reporting is voluntary. Do we have any sense of why uh, these we're having this this spike in work workplace attacks on them? Hmm. Let's see. Shall we examine? Let's take healthcare and turn it into a predatory game of scarcity where we overcharge people for basic things. Hmm, I wonder what will happen. Maybe they'll start biting each other in the neck. That's what you got, Leonard. You got a situation of fear and scarcity in the hospital. People don't understand the systems. They are always on the defensive because they're being asked to document their very existence in triplicate. Then you have a workforce that is itself also anxious about the the nature of our litigious society. So you have nurses who entered the profession because they had an instinct to heal and to have hands-on engagement with making life better for people and instead spend, what, 35 minutes out of every clinical hour documenting what they just did? You want to know why assaults are up? I'm not surprised it's not higher. I mean, if you take a look at just at New York City, what we've seen happen to EMTs, 2018, 163 assaults on FDNY EMTs, hmm. 2017, 2019, 217, 2020, 329, 2021, 386. We can even going talk up. For about, we could talk about bus drivers and uh, subway conductors. And people that basically their crime is trying to get you from point A to point B without getting killed. They get assaulted. So there's something going on here. And I do think it can be tracked back to 
a lack of accountability in general in society. When you have the kind of thing we happened in the nation's capital and the leadership of an insurrection goes on to prosper and run for office and enjoy all the trappings uh, that the corporate news media can give them, there is a kind of a sense of, of uh, like a lawlessness. And it's not the lawlessness about the person that's homeless that takes a loaf of bread out of CVS. It's about the people in power abusing their power to the extreme, like we see with the absolute hog fest of the Supreme Court, why they are grabbing with both hands. Should we invite our listeners to join this conversation? Sure. Okay, let me give out the phone number. It's 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. My guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Bob Henley. saying before, uh, according to surveys by the American College of Emergency Physicians and the Emergency Nurses Association, almost half of emergency uh, physicians report being physically assaulted at work, while about 70 percent of emergency nurses report being hit and kicked while on the job. Wow. Yeah, yeah, th- and so that is, uh, and listen, I saw it after my, uh, uh, you know, I had a brief stint, uh, I guess almost a year ago in the hospital, great hospital over here at Jersey Shore, taken care of by uh, nurses, uh, the, uh, the nurses who are from HPAE, New Jersey's leading healthcare union, there's a little plug. Uh, and one of the things I saw was, uh, you know, without violating uh, patient confidentiality, but Nurses are put in the position of trying to, just like law enforcement, trying to resolve issues that society is running away from. And so there was one point in which I shared a room with someone who was very up in years, did not want to be on the planet anymore, kept pulling out their IVs. Hmm. The family was uh, very divided about what to do in terms of course of life. One faction wanted the the person to continue living. The other wanted hospice. And there was an impasse. And so into this valley of misery are the nurses. And so every time that they would try to do something to help this patient, the patient would act out and hit them. And so imagine, multiply that uh, times all the number of situations that we see. And so uh, part of the problem here is that we've built into healthcare. Like I say, this 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 scarcity and fear when what you need for healing is 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 bravery and trust. And so if you want to be about healing, that's what has to be the core value in your healthcare system. Should we take some calls? Sure. Okay, BAI, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Yes, hi. You refer to our system as healthcare, it's sick care. Uh, nurses, unlike uh, California, where there are limitations 
I believe it's six um, patients per nurse in the regular uh, right. setting. And ICU, I believe it's either one or two. Right. Uh, the, another factor on the corporatization of even nonprofits uh, like Northwell, um, there, there's a phenomenon of hospitalists where they outsource um, medical doctors, uh, either osteopath or a medical doctor, so they don't have to have them as employees, and they do it by contract, which is horrifying because... You know, there's a tendency for the hospitalist to, you know, think, well, like a ticket writer, uh, traffic ticket writer, I have a so-called quota, and it's not getting people, the outcome is not, in the, long-term outcomes are not considered, and the nurses are used, are stuck, because they don't see the outcomes, they get the short-term um, you know, experience, and it's not satisfying. They don't, and actually, it's the I fault the lobbyists, I fault the nonprofits, executives, but I also fault the public because the public see their loved ones being mistreated, misdiagnosed, and you know, given medications that are over medicated or inappropriate. And they suffer, and there seems to be no outcry from the public, whether it be in the nursing home, horrific um, murder and killing and intubation of patients in the beginning uh, unnecessarily, where you had 89% of people who intubated in New York. Let's find out what Bob thinks about it. Yeah, but also I want to think, Paula, you sound like you've got some initials after your name. Okay, the way well, you're asking these wanna, questions, you know where the bodies I, are buried. I, I do. I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> okay. Might recognize my voice, but I had a mother who, who, uh, you know, I was on top of her care. You had a mother she, too. Oh. No, I had a mother who was uh, 90, and she was in the uh, so-called healthcare system. So I didn't reveal my my initials after my name. Right. And I have all the patient records, misdiagnosis, mistreatment, and actually, um, you know, I, I'm not a person who sues, but I will make sure that these physicians pay a price because they don't know that I what I know and what they what harm they did. And it's not really their fault. They are, you know, they're time pressed. And a, and a lot of last thing, when you go to an emergency room, bring a list of your medications, bring a list of your diagnosis and your history, and it will be thrown out. Bring three, three of them, and constantly give it out. Because it won't uh, be thrown out. I'm going to call you a doctor because I assume that that's what you are. But these are such basic, basic rules of the road. And what you're talking about is a kind of informed and inspired militancy on behalf of our loved ones. And that's what we owe them. And we thank you so much for your call and for uh, alerting us to all of that. And let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, as a retired educator, I can't tell you how much you're educating me. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I, uh, I live a somewhat Spartan life. Um, uh, my son really calls it Neanderthal. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't have a, um, I don't have a cell phone. I don't use a computer. I'm off the grid completely. Um, We're so uh, grateful that you have a radio. <laughs> yes. yes, and I have a ground unit cell phone. I saw it as a sort of Damocles, and I used it when I had to, when I was educating, and then I stopped, and I'm so happy. And what do you want I to have- talk about? Um, unfortunately, it leaves me a little bit ignorant. I came in about 10 minutes after the program started, and I caught the tail end of this uh, thing with the um, uh, Medicare and, and uh, what the Medicare to do to us retirees. Um, I was wondering if you could just clarify, just succinctly, where um, I wouldn't take up anybody else's time, uh, where we stand right now. And the other thing I wanted to ask you is, I read in, um, oh, now I'm forgetting exactly where, but I know it's, it's reputable, that basically um, Wall Street is taking over um, medical care completely almost with their doctors and nurses, that basically nurses and doctors are being combined into these groups and you deal with these um, with these uh, LLCs uh, that have now grown into humongous kind of Wall Street uh, investment firms. Uh, and, and you have large amounts of these people now, and that's that was one of the problems that we had with the hospitals there. You needed to call them up for, you know, a certain amount of your doctors there to come in and come out and your nurses to come in and come out. How Bob. much of this is happening? Bob? So, so let's, uh, the uh, Medicare Advantage, so what's happened is that the uh, mayor signed the contract with Medicare Advantage, Aetna. There is a... You're talking a about curing, New York's mayor. New York's in New York State, right? And it, uh, there's a 30-day curing period where... Uh, the um, Brad Lander, the city controller, has to uh, certify the contract and evaluate it. Uh, the clock, we believe, is starting to run on that, although it seemed to take forever for the contract to go from City Hall to 1 Center Street. Uh, I should have offered to carry it over. It seemed to get lost for a while. Uh, then there has also been some push by the retirees to try to get the city council to reform the administrative code to protect the existing construct of uh, free uh, uh, Medicare and uh, that would keep people uh, with what they currently have. Uh, there is going to be a sign-up period later in the year for Medicare um, Advantage where they migrate people off of their current arrangement. Uh, there are some implications for uh, dropping out of what's being offered, depending on your union, in terms of you might lose your health and welfare funds. Uh, for that, you really do need to be uh, realize you can reach out to OLR, Office of Legislative Services, but you should also check it against these retiree advocacy groups that are trying to keep all of this straight because it's very complicated. On the question about the increasing financialization of healthcare, one of the things we're seeing is that doctors are increasingly becoming employees. And you're right that they're being grouped into these cohorts, uh, which offers them a, a kind of like group indemnification, which is nothing to sneeze at when you're dealing with the potential liability for malpractice lawsuits. Uh, one of the things we've seen is that uh, Wall Street is increasingly kind of setting the agenda we're seeing that there's all these attempts to merge into larger and larger uh, companies, Aetna, Humana, 
Cigna, all of them trying to uh, gobble up another entity. Uh, we did see the Obama administration, to its credit, stop uh, some of these mergers. Others went through. But the bottom line is that we're seeing this ability of um, monopoly capitalism to actually start driving the nature of how medicine is delivered without any kind of countervailing pressure in the public interest. And so that is something, and that's why there's concern that the FLCIO, with all the good work they do, including this great annual report on workplace death and dangers and occupational hazards, the fact that they signed on to Medicare Advantage uh, that even my own union that I am very happy I receive a pension from, that they signed to the Medicare Advantage. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're realizing that it's some they see the short-term financial benefit, but not the long-term policy consequence of having all this additional cost and profits on top of Medicare's fundamental mission. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, you, my guest is Bob Henley, who uh, you may also hear on Monday mornings here on WBAI, or you can read him um, in Salon and uh, a number of other prominent news. Work shows. Bites. We got Work Bites as my uh, and Insider and Jay are the two. Uh, those are the two new ones, the big ones? Those are the two. New, yeah, they've been around for a while, but okay. they're, uh, they're good spots. And I, we still have a few more calls. Uh, I'm going to try to squeeze as many in as I can. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. BAI, you're on the air. Hey, I think it's me now. Okay, uh, it's uh, you. Union. Yeah, Bob, it's so great to hear Bob Henry. Can you talk better into your phone? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. I, I said it's such a great thing to have Bob Henley on. He's such a breath of fresh air. Um, in the in the medical Fresh field, air is a whole other show. I'm sorry. <laughs> we do not want to deal with that. Academic, in the academic field that I used to be in, um, we're, we're suffering the consequences of what a few years ago, I don't know, five years ago, was called the financialization of the economy. We don't hear right. the term anymore. But it's, it's Wall Street taking over. What I'd like to mention is uh, in the uh, defense and Pentagon budget area, it seems as though uh, all of our foreign policy decisions are made with, uh, with the tip of the hat, with the concern, first of all, that the military-industrial complex makes money. Um, Andrew Coburn's book, um, uh, The Spoils of War, really outlines this very well. But in the in the current current situation, where we see um, the U.S. being uh, adamant about extending NATO and, and financing the war in Ukraine, I'm just wondering if the Chinese are going to try to make peace. And Putin says, "Well, if you if you withdraw the NATO proposal, uh, is it is it at all possible that we would put the profits of the military-industrial complex second to world peace and world survival?" I mean, never mind that Republicans and Democrats treat the military budget as, as something sacred, um, even though there's a huge amount of waste and, um, and special, uh, special pleading and special finance go money going to the, the revolving door between generals and corporations. Bob? Yeah, so I, I, absolutely. I would say that and it's so important. I'm glad that we're going to close out this hour with pointing out the thing that Martin Luther King uh, was pointing out, 
which is the linkage between all the things we've been talking about today and the nation's uh, reliance and addiction to military spending, which is obscene. It also is uh, leaves us wholly inadequate to defend ourselves against the clear and present civil defense dangers that we face now. I would say exhibit A would be COVID. It's strange that the nation that has all kinds of rockets and missiles didn't really have enough N95 masks. And then similarly, I will say to you that when we see across this country corridor communities through which vast quantities of life-changing volatile organic chemicals and things like vinyl chloride are pushed through every day by unscrupulous railroads who are driving their uh, their workforces uh, to physical destruction. And then we have these massive explosions like we had in East Palestine. And then in some kind of just bizarre thing, it's always volunteers. I don't care if they're Republican. I don't care if they're Democrat, but God bless them, they're volunteers. And the United States, in all of its might, with all the money it spends all over the world to blow up the rest of the world, we send these volunteers out to fight the vinyl chloride a conflagration without their own self-contained respiratory device, because that's how much we love them. I'm sorry, Leonard, but we need to start regearing this country for the threats that we face. And that means, hold on to your hat, professionalizing all of the fire departments, professionalizing all of EMS in this country as if our lives were worth it. I thought it was really going to be resolved by the firing of, of Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon. But I guess <laughs> uh, I think we have time to sneak another call in. Uh, hi, BAI, you're on the air. Hey, Lenny, it's Russ. Hey, Bob. Oh, excellent. My day is complete. <laughs> hey, Bob, real quick. Do we, do, we, do we hold responsible the union and its leaders who started the ball rolling with Medicare Advantage trading off union retirees for cash in the hands of current workers? Because this not only damages the union's image and recruitment, it damages you, worker cohesion. The teachers' union, Mulgrew and uh, Weingarten, started this off. Should we hold them responsible? And secondly, Bob, listen, I, I mourn your sister and Kathy Davis's brother, my wife, father died three years ago from this, so I know it's serious, okay? But the lawlessness from no work, no church, people believe government when they're told in 9-11 to go back to work. Now we believe the government that we should have shut down masks and masks. There is a balancing of reward from hype with the risk from unintended consequences. Will there ever be a balancing? Are you so attached to these lies that you keep repeating them? Thanks. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, as usual... It's a clown car of ideas with some things in there that we can relate to. So I will say that certainly some of the unions have been involved in promoting this idea of Medicare Advantage. I, I think they believe it's in the long-term interest of their workforces, uh, and they think they have come up with a solution that is going to limit the damage to retirees. I think they're wrong. There are, are unions within that uh, group that have been fighting it. Uh, as far as... Uh, making reference i do think that it's very clear that our inability to have a a common narrative which is exemplified by russ's call the fact that we do have the the news now we have is basically unauthenticated information that is collected and aggregated on social media platforms so you can choose which reality you'd like to believe in i believe that uh just to be straight up about it that masks help prevent disease 
I think, and I also was a strong proponent of vaccine. I do believe the way that Mayor de Blasio went about coercing it was wrong and violated labor law. I don't think I covered all the points, Leonard, but he threw us a lot. Now, if people want a copy of your book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People?, how can they get it? Is it available at all the bookstores? Well, it's uh, certainly at Asbury Park Press, my local uh, book cooperative, of course. Uh, it is at Democracy at Work, uh, which is a nonprofit that uh, uh, Professor Richard Wolf leads. He's no leads. He's no uh, stranger to these airwaves. And also, you can reach out to me through at Stuck Nation. Mm-hmm. And I also have a direct um, DM function there. So I'm always glad to get tips. Complaints, observations. Uh, I'm like I say, uh, Matt Stuck Nation because we surely are. Just look who we're—they're talking about Trump and Biden, 2024. Leonard, that's a stuck nation. We also um, have to spend a few moments talking about WBAI in uh, 2023. Uh, We are going through a really rough time, Bob. You know that? Uh, I know. Listen, I get the same emails. And so we do know that there's going to be a big pledge drive coming up at the end of the month. But I will tell you, as I always say, if people want, would will be willing to become a BAA buddy and uh, attribute it to your show or my show, um, I just like building bridges. If you do that, I will be glad to mail you, and I take the responsibility for mailing it. Uh, I do believe the programming is a premium, but I will send you my book if you become a BAI buddy. Now, uh, people become BAI buddies by agreeing to send the station 10, 15, 20, 25, however many dollars a month uh, they uh, feel comfortable sending, as long as they feel sending it. Uh, and that allows us to plan for the future. Right now, <laughs> the future is looking a little bleak. Uh, the, the, the pandemic has really hurt us, uh, not just us at public radio in general, but uh, BAI has been hurt a lot. Well, so, well listen, it, people, this is we've gotten through these tough uh, periods before. And, uh, you know, the issues that we've been talking about over the last 30 to 40 years have defined the public discourse for the current period of time. So if you want to play a role in shaping that discourse into the future, we're a good investment. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. If you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. And as Bob and I have said, we would hope that you'd step up and support WBAI with a tax-deductible contribution. Call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given the number to WBAI.org. Please do it. We are the only station on the New York Dial that is 100% dependent on listener support, and your contribution is tax deductible. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when Monona Russell will be our guest, and she'll be taking your calls. We'll be seeing you then. 